Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 430, The Curious Case of Curios. Chillians, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. Eddie, you look very well rested after your Fourth of July. No uh, major festivities for you? <laughs> no, I wasn't out yesterday. They don't celebrate I'm that the... in France. <laughs> no, not a huge holiday here. No, I mean there were. The, you know, you can go to the old bar and obviously, you know, expat bars. There's there's a few things going on, but no, I was not out. I haven't been out since Saturday. Been pretty restful. Wow, I'm on my street days. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm back on my I've been every weekday going to the gym too. You know, getting back into that rhythm. So you say uh, getting back into that rhythm, but when was the last been, time that rhythm had been there? <laughs> it's been like a seven year hiatus. Okay, <laughs> you make it sound like it was a few months ago. <laughs> no, no, it's been a pretty it's been a pretty long time. I don't know if you say interest? getting back. I don't know if that qualifies <laughs> after five well, years. It's just you're starting new. I actually find it odd. And, and it's something that, I mean, maybe you don't experience because I'm imagining the gym you go to has a little bit of a different type of clientele. And, and I'm imagining based on how you've described it, it All leans towards, well, <laughs> it leans more towards like the, the very serious gym goers, yeah. I would assume. So you're not getting the kind of, whereas the gym I'm going to, you get, you do have that mixture. So there's definitely, and particularly when I'm going during the day, you've got the guys like dominating the you know kind of free weight section who are very much there for their serious workout it does I, d- I do notice then you have two very different types of men and there's a significant portion of them who just look kind of terrified like especially when they're entering the gym that they're kind of entering this sort of unknown territory where they feel as if they're going to be judged it's, it's it's a strange experience yeah the what was funny was when i lived in france and tim and i the gym we went to was a very serious gym. And it was funny because the only people that were really lifting there were either people who were professional bodybuilders or powerlifters, something like that, or someone whose job depended upon them being strong. So like a lot of like bouncers, yeah, or or certain types of construction workers where they had to you know, actually lift heavy things for a majority of their work. So it was really different from the American environment where I would say 70% of the people are kind of just going in and out occasionally just to stay fit or something like that, you know, where, whereas there it was, if you were going, if you had an actual need to be strong, it was kind of weird. Uh, but yeah, and that's kind of actually the gym I'm in now. It's mostly uh, powerlifters and athletes and things like that. So it's a pretty dedicated group. So we don't get many of the people who are petrified walking into the gym. <laughs> I also made the mistake today of doing of cycling while watching the tour de france and you got caught up I'm, in the moment <laughs> no it's the opposite it's just really depressing to <laughs> kind of be gauged like looking at the difference between how fast you're going and not that i was suddenly expecting to be you know keeping strides with professional cyclists as i was as i was plowing along but it does put everything very much into perspective while especially as i was on also a recumbent bike so even <laughs> even less of a challenge. That's funny. You know, it was always interesting when they did those, they would have like the bikes and the treadmills with the TVs, but instead of actual TV, you could be put into 
like a race, like a virtual race. Yeah. I mean, now they have yeah, obviously the way more advanced versions with Peloton and like things like that stuff now. But yeah. like the old school ones were so bad because the, it was either like a beginner level or an extreme advanced level. So either you couldn't come close to competing with the like the computer, or you just blew the computer out of the water five minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> I've been I've been doing a lot of the like pre-recorded routes, so you you know you're kind of watching countryside go by. Oh yeah, yeah. Your area, you're like picking your area of the world to kind of explore as you're on the ride, and then it. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't pay that much attention. Like it's not even something I'm really noticing. But then they do also throw in weird like historical facts. So you'll suddenly, you know, you'll be cycling through the forest in Canada and all of a sudden it's telling you how old some of the trees are and stuff like that. It's like a very bizarre experience. I guess, you know, they're expecting that you're not going, you're using this as a very much as a casual experience at that point. I wonder who that person is that wore that 360 camera on their helmet to do that trek. (laughs) Well, that's actually the interesting thing, because when you see the recordings, there are other people, obviously, on the the hike or whatever they're doing. Yeah. And so you'll see people kind of interact. They obviously realize that this person is, is recording something because sometimes they'll also just reach the end of something and you're just overlooking, like you're at the top of a mountain and you'll get them, you'll get 15 seconds of just kind of looking around and you'll see people kind of stand in front and wave <laughs> as they kind of obviously are figuring out what's going on. Is it, that's, Man, that's, imagine figuring it out too, like what you're being recorded for and then being able to go and see yourself and your, in that. Yourself. That would be cool. That would yeah, be so funny. But yeah, it's like the Google Maps cars that you see driving around. Yes. Yeah, I was once able to spot myself on my street on Google Maps, and it's surprisingly exciting. Like, it's you don't want to admit that it's kind of exciting when you see it, but it is as stupid as it is. It's sort of exciting. <laughs> well, speaking of exciting, Eddie, I had a uh, so I read this article and I wanted to get your opinion on it. At, at what time point you would have participated in this? In this, what I thought was quite exciting. So. Many airlines now, they're canceling flights like crazy. And Delta recently upped the amount that they would offer for you to get off an overbooked flight up to $10,000. That's the new max that they'll go to at the very end. So there was a one-hour flight from Cedar Rapids, Michigan to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was overbooked, and they started the bidding at $5,000 to get off of this flight, which then they'll put you on the next one that's available. So you're, it's not, you're, not, yeah. you're not paying for the flight, but they were going to give you 5000 And they said, if, if you have Apple Pay, you'll get it within seconds. Like it was cash. It wasn't a voucher. It wasn't like gift <laughs> yeah, yeah. cards. It was cash. Do you take I, it at 5000 It's a one-hour oh, flight. Assuming that I'm not, you know, there's not something yeah. very important that I'm trying to get to. And it would have to be super important. It would have to be like wedding, funeral, business meeting. I have to. Someone sick. Miss. Yes. Yeah. Like, th- to be honest with you, even wedding, I'm probably taking it. <laughs> I think. <maybe. laughs> just yeah, be, I kind of agree. I'm as just long being as like, you're not sorry, in the guys. party. If you're not in the party, uh, even if even if it's my wedding, I'm probably <laughs> being like, sorry, I'm a little late. <laughs> like, it's just that. But hey, I got you all. Because cool, I, I got you all cool gifts from the from the gift shop. I just wouldn't tell anyone. 
you know that because that would be the just reverse. say it got just canceled. Say, my flight got canceled. I got bu- I wouldn't say canceled because someone might look that up. I would say I got bumped off my flight. Overbooked. Got bumped. Like I'd know you're lying yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> if I ever say that now, yeah. Or I just say I missed it. Like oh wow, really bad traffic on the way to Cedar security was crazy. Yeah, you should see that airport's a it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> just go on a long rant, but. And hope that no one else who's then in that meeting or at that event was on that same flight. Or in that airport. Yeah. I, saw, I saw you take the money. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you hold up your Apple Pay. <laughs> you were waving frantically. You said, I've got nowhere to be. You high-fived everyone as you went up. <laughs> All those idiots that are in line waiting to board the plane early. <laughs> oh, I definitely take 5000 Okay. Like 100%. So no one took 5000 Not one person. They then bumped it up. To seventy five hundred, a hundred percent. Yeah, again. I mean, I've said a hundred percent to five thousand. No just... one took it. They then bumped. So the, I think the other caveat for this is they're already on the plane, so the plane's already loaded. Yeah, you're being you're being asked to get yes. off. Yes, like you're in your seat. They yeah. bumped it up to ten thousand dollars. It took twenty five minutes for them to get enough people to get off the flight. The the really depressing part of this story, not depressing, but the part that kind of sucks for this one for who's uh, like talking about the story was that there was a group of eight who kind of said like, oh, we really don't have anywhere to be. We'd take it, but we don't want just some of us to take it and other people to go. They then found out that it was eight tickets exactly. And had they spoken yeah. up when it first got announced... They all could have gotten off and gotten eighty thousand dollars between them, and just got on the next flight the next day. They were like, "Yeah, we had nowhere to be. We were just like coming back from like a vacation, but we had a few extra days off." Blah blah blah, and they didn't know. And by the time they said something, two people had already taken it, so they didn't want to do it anymore. Especially, you would think if you are a group and you know that they need multiple people to get off, you would think one of you would approach and kind of try and negotiate at that point. Yeah. Like we're a group of eight. How many do you need off? Oh, you need eight. Okay. We'll take it for, you know, even when they're offering 5,000, if you, cause you could quickly look up, right. And see what the maximum amount they'll get. They say they'll offer. I guess in the back of your mind, maybe you're thinking this is what they publicly say is the maximum amount, but maybe they really go over this amount. But if I then read, we, we do a quick Google search it's us and six other people and we see it's 10,000 each. One of us would just go up and say, there's eight of us. How many do you need? Oh, eight. We'll take it for eighty thousand, done in like yeah. right here. You get all eight of us, and but yeah, I mean the only other, I guess factoring in the only other thing worth saying because people maybe listening would be frustrated by missing this out is obviously if you're starting a vacation or something and this is going to impact like oh we're going to miss our connecting flight and then we've already paid for hotel you know like the knock on effect of missing that flight could be could be considerable. And yes, they'll say they'll put you on their next flight, but they're going to put you on the next flight they available. have available seats on. Yeah. So you might get stuck in Cedar Rapids for two days. You never know. Maybe. But, but you'll still have $10,000 in your pocket to, to compensate and, yourself with. And they pay for, right, they'd pay for your hotel, for example, as part of that too. Like if you have to stay overnight, yeah. you'll also get that thrown in and like the stupid vouchers they give you for meals and stuff in the airport. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd take the 5000 But I do understand when you're sitting there, if you know the maximum is ten, because you'd feel like a little bit of an idiot immediately taking the 5000 and then finding out 
no one else really jumped at the opportunity and you could have had 10,000. I wonder if they later. Well, it didn't happen here, but I wonder if they would like recompensate you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would just, it would be tempting to go up to them and say, I'm willing to get off the flight. What's the, what's the most you could offer me? Yeah. And seeing if there, they give you the deal. But I mean, it's pretty crazy. It even took over 20 minutes just to get eight at $10,000 for a one hour flight. In a worst, worst case, you pocket 10,000 and you Uber eight hours to Minneapolis for what? A thousand? Then you got (laughs) $9,000. You could probably, I mean, look, if there's eight of you, you could, you could book a private plane. No, but seriously, like I know, for, but like for, a one-hour flight, like. for less than eighty thousand dollars, you could book a private plane from Cedar Rapids to Minneapolis. I'm that sure that would be so funny. We so got eighty thousand, and we spent seventy on it for a one-hour private jet. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we still had two thousand each, or whatever. You know, like whatever amount it works out to. I don't know. Still be a better experience than your Delta flight. But now I'm I'm. I almost dream of that sometimes when I'm flying. I do too, because I fly often, and I've never had that before. No, nope. Admittedly, I do. When they when you hear about people taking the like five hundred or something, that almost seems more trouble than it's worth. I'd still probably be tempted by it a lot of the time. Like if you're on, especially if you're facing a one hour flight, and you think, "What? I'm gonna have to sit in the airport for, you know, four or five hours." That doesn't seem like the end of the world. I'd probably still consider it. But I'd probably turn it down once you start getting into the thousands. Once you get into the four figures. Yeah. It's very tempting. And I mean, like, if I have to stay in a hotel the next that night, I love hotels. I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If I'm not in a rush, who cares? Yeah. But speaking of allowances, this is going to transition us into the world of sport. I don't know if you've seen that Wimbledon has been complaining because players have been taking advantage of the daily food and drink allowance. <laughs> I saw this. That they have been. So Wimbledon allows every player to have 90 pounds to spend on drinks and snacks and food. And coaches day. too, no? The, you can, so the coach, you get to elect one addition, one coach who then gets 45 pounds per day. Okay. But I think basically anyone within your team can kind of use that combined allowance like it doesn't specifically have to be you you can go and say i'm buying this on behalf of yeah. rafa nadal i'm in his camp and basically they've seen that people have not been using this as an allowance but rather a target so that everyone basically spends 90 pounds a day on food and snacks and i think they said the tipping point they basically listed was they saw a coach walking away with I think it was twenty four yogurts. Yeah, twenty four yeah. yogurts. I or saw you. that, <laughs> so, which admittedly seems slightly excessive. And so now they're thinking of reconsidering it. Supposedly the Australian Open has already had to implement some kind of restrictions because they previously offered unlimited access to food and drinks, and then just people completely abused the system. And so now they've actually put in strict limits. But I see thought that's it was interesting that's to surprising see. to me because. I would think with the mentality, if you told someone that like all the food's free, that people wouldn't abuse it and would just eat what they want. Whereas if you told people you have a limit, that just the idea of having a limit, people want to reach that limit. If you see what I'm saying, like to me, that's how I I would assume people would, would think 
but I guess that's not true. You, <laughs> you say that, Frank, but yeah. only a couple of weeks ago, you saw me take like 20 beers out of the Eurostar Euro Lounge. <laughs> so, I mean, I was basically doing exactly the same thing. You stocked your fridge for a month. Yeah, admittedly, I wasn't. You were taking drinks that we said didn't taste good just to retake yeah. more of them and then throw them out. <laughs> oh, I'm 100% sure there are players doing exactly that. There's players who's like, oh, I'll grab three of everything. And then they're like, oh, I hate these. Well, I'll just grab three of them again tomorrow. But I, I mean, it, it kind of surprises me. It doesn't surprise me if, I mean, if you're a low-ranking player, I can understand taking all of it. Like if you're someone who's, you know, on an annual basis struggling in terms of like, yeah, you're making good money, but the Grand Slam is where you're going to make the majority of your income for the year. I can understand someone thinking, look, I'm going to grab every drink and snack I can. And if I'm taking those back to my Airbnb or my hotel, that's a win too. Like I wouldn't begrudge someone lower down the rankings doing that. If I saw Rafa Nadal like walking out with, you know, 15 Lucasades that he's holding on to when he's got like a sponsorship deal from another energy drink and just gets them for free anyway, that would probably annoy me slightly if I was an organizer. But from that sort of banal piece of news, I guess we can move on to the real excitement of the Wimbledon tournament so far, which was Saturday evening's clash between Nick Kyrgios and Stefano Tsitsipas. Or, or Saturday morning if you're me. <laughs> yeah. For the, yeah, depending on your time zone. Sunday morning if you're in Australia. I don't know. <laughs> Do I to, but yeah, uh, a heated, in the end, uh, Kyrgios went through in four sets, came from a set down to win. He is in seemingly very good form. And, you know, with the quarterfinals still to play, one of the players in with probably the best chance of winning the tournament. But their match got extremely confrontational. Yep. Which everyone knew it was going to going in because it had already well, built up. It had built itself up that there was going yeah. to be something happening. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised. So after Sitsipas won his, in the round before, in his post-match interview, he was asked about like the on-court interview that they gave after wins. Yeah. He was asked about like, oh, in the next round, you're going to be playing Kyrgios. Is that something you look forward to? And he complimented Kyrgios. Yeah. He said, like, we all know how talented he is. But then we also know, I can't remember exactly it what was, he used, but sort of. He said he, he can be really great when he wants to be, I think yeah. is pretty much what, what was said. Which, if I were in his camp, Whose camp? I would have said, sits a pass. Okay. I would have been like, that's not what you need to say. Because you know that for that very reason, he can be great when he wants to be. You don't need to fuel that fire. Yeah. Like there is no reason to put a target on your back going into ma a match against him. You want him to be complacent for him to lose interest, for him to get like worked up in all of the rest of the circus that surrounds the match and kind of lose focus on you. So it wasn't probably the greatest move. I was surprised they've had clashes, kind of small run-ins before, but they also have previously played doubles together. So I was surprised with the level of animosity that developed on court. So for those who didn't watch... Well, before you get to that, though, I, I want to fast forward, too, because I think Kyrgios said in his post-interview that he's good friends with his brother as well, or something like that, he said. He said he's really close with his brother. Yeah, Sitsipas' other brother is plays professional yeah. tennis. So that's why I, not, who, it's even stranger to me, because it seems like there is 
some sort of relationship there, whether even if it's through the brother, but still, you know, like it's not as if they don't have never interacted off the court. Yeah. I mean, and, and the on the court events in a way for a match involving Kyrgios, they weren't that stunning. I mean, the real talking point was after losing, I guess the second set, I think it was, Sitsipas hit a ball in the, into the crowd uh, without really looking it, narrowly missed someone's head, hit the wall, and then bounced into someone, at which point Kyrgios pushed very hard for Tsitsipas to be defaulted, which I have to admit is kind of an unusual scene in a professional tennis match, just how worked up Kyrgios was in, in I mean, arguing, asking for supervisors to come on court and basically really pushing for the fact that... Uh, so now what's it mean to be defaulted? It It's forfeiting the match if you remember completely out happened, of the match like done yeah it's you know you you have had extreme moments of it uh it happened to Djokovic in the u.s open a couple of years ago when he hit a ball and it hit a uh an umpire uh, a line judge i think um or a ball boy one of the two i think it was a line judge though and then he was defaulted and, and Kyrgios kind of made a good point when the when the chair umpire said look i don't think that's significant enough to default him Kyrgios then just can I just can I just start wailing balls into the crowd then like at any moment which would have been an interesting move for him to just start you know hitting 120 mile an hour balls after he lost every point just into the crowd Sitsipas got very worked up over the course of the match he clearly started targeting Kyrgios on certain points and then after one underarm serve just I mean smashed the ball out like kind of like the thing you see like a very petulant child move it's the kind of thing you see when you watch like eight-year-olds play tennis when they'll just be really worked up and they don't want to be on court anymore and they just smash it out the, the intentionally targeting Kyrgios at certain moments when they were both in the net is a, a somewhat frowned upon thing to do in tennis like it's accepted at times but what well i think you're fast forwarding though because you're you're missing the points at which Kyrgios was according to you know, according to most people watching, was being very disrespectful of uh, what it was. What did he say? Because uh, then he complained to the judge and said he's being disrespectful of his opponent, of the game, and of like the spectators in general, or something like that. Because he, at one point, like under through the legs, underhand served. Yes, and then underhand served again. He did it twice. Which, which, like you know, Kyrgios has been. I mean, there have been famous moments of underarm serves. Again, one of those things totally allowed within the rules of tennis, but frowned upon for the most part. And there have been really infamous moments. Uh, Michael Chang famously did it, I think, in the French Open final in the 90s. There have been certain moments when players have had to rely upon it. But for the most part over the years, you've kind of only seen it when someone's injured. That's typically the only time when you'd really see when I have it like a shoulder injury and they have no alternative. Kyrgios has been someone who's used it pretty extensively. Uh, it's, it's over the last couple of years become much more commonplace. Some players hate it. Some players don't care. Andy Murray used it in the, I think in the first or second he round did. of Wimbledon. And then, and then afterwards said he doesn't understand what the big deal is about it. But he didn't totally throw his legs win. underhand serve it. <laughs> he didn't throw it. But I mean, what's really the difference, you know, apart from the fact that you're disguising it slightly better. Like that's the thing that Kyrgios did really well with the underarm through the legs. I think, no, I, th I think that one is kind of shoving it in your face. Maybe, but I mean, f f you know, fun his argument would be, 
and and the argument of any of the players who are doing it because in tennis what you are seeing more and more is the receivers will just go deeper and deeper and deeper because they're trying to put themselves in a better position to return the ball and certain and a lot of times particularly on these big like the center courts of major tournaments the courts themselves are huge compared to what you would see like i mean at roland garros for example the center court is just massive and when you compare it to the size of what a normal tennis court would be, you know, you're, you're getting a few extra yards at the back and in terms of width, in terms of playing space available, obviously not in terms of within the lines themselves, but in the additional space, players are getting so deep, it is giving them a better opportunity to return. And so, you know, the players who are doing the underarm serves are basically arguing like, look, if you're going to stand five meters behind the baseline and put me in a situation where I can just dink the ball over and get an ace, then all that's telling me is you need to stand closer. Like, that's it. If you stand two meters closer, obviously I'm not going to do it because if I do it, you're probably going to easily win the point. So there's this balancing act that has to be there. I can kind of get true, a, but not through the like it's you're showing off at that point. I think you are you're like disrespecting your opponent and kind of showing off in front of them. It's it's the equivalent like in hockey when people do the Michigan where they go around the net and pick the puck up anytime that's done in hockey pretty much the unwritten rule is you can just destroy that person. Yeah. Like whenever it's done, you like, you want to almost break their stick in half because it's a disrespect move. And if they get it, they get it like, and screw them. But if they're going to attempt it, then they're going to get the repercussions because it's disrespectful. If it had been anyone other than Kyrgios, I think I'd agree with you. But Kyrgios hits tweeners all the time, like at any point in matches when it makes absolutely no sense. He does a little bit to show off. I guess you could argue it's a little bit disrespectful. I think he would argue he's just... Oh, God, I have such a good joke in there. I'm not going to take it. I think, he, I think he would argue he's just entertaining and like it's just his laid back nature that he plays. But... It, he often does it to his own detriment. I mean, you'll see him in situations where he could hit an easy volley and instead decides to hit a volley between his legs and he loses the point as a result. So if it had been anyone other than Kyrgios, I think you're right that I would have been I would have been annoyed if I'd been his opponent. But knowing who it is up against you, I think if you go into a match with Kyrgios, you'd set the over-under on how many times he's going to hit the ball between his legs at three and a half. If he did it to me 15 times, I would think he was disrespecting me and just thought it was too easy. But if it's only a handful of times, it just comes through the territory. Yeah. So, the, I mean, there was there was a lot of small instances. So the other thing was apparently Kyrgios was, was talking a lot. And at one point, this is a pretty good one, uh, a reporter had asked him, there was a moment when uh, he had missed an easy shot and you replied, good shot. I mean, that is not nice. You must admit, if someone had done that to you, you wouldn't have liked it. And Kyrgios said, am I trying to be nice? I most likely wouldn't have come in here and said I got bullied. I said, nice shot. Now this is getting out of hand. Then he follows it up, though, which is great. This is classic Kyrgios. It wasn't an easy shot. I had a good serve, and I saw him working on his backhand return yesterday, and he hit the back fence. So I said, good shot. I thought it was. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you've, again, you've, you've then skipped a bit because in the post-match, so Tsitsipas uh, came in first in the post-match interviews and uh, the kind of real talking point out of, the, out of that was he accused uh, Kyrgios of being a bully. He said he'd obviously been a bully when he was a child and that he'd been a, he'd bullied him on court and then Tsitsipas also threw in that he did not like bullies. Uh, Kyrgios was asked about this extensively in his post-match interview that followed on just afterwards. He'd obviously not seen any of these comments before he was then told them in his press conference. I think it was pretty fitting that in the, in the conference itself, he was wearing a Dennis Rodman t-shirt. And that obviously was not 
uh, a, a coincidence in any way. Uh, and I think he very much is viewing himself kind of as the Dennis Rodman of tennis, this kind of controversial figure who maybe gets a little bit more attention than he should do in, you know, a kind of more of a, ba- a bad boy reputation than he probably deserves. Kyrgios was pretty stunned by the bullying comments, said he didn't understand how he possibly bullied him, that he should basically go away and work on beating him. He'd also be annoyed if he'd lost to the same player two weeks in a row because Kyrgios had beat him in, in the warm-up tournament to Wimbledon the week prior. I, like, I did, in watching the match, it didn't come across to me as, as if Kyrgios was bullying Sitsipas. I think there was a little bit of mental warfare going on. Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think there was mental warfare, and I think Kyrgios was pushing it further. But I think it wasn't as I think it wasn't straight bullying. It was a little bit of him being too like letting it get to him too yeah. at the same time. No, I think that's the key. If Sitsabas had just ignored it, you know, you're gonna get. Kyrgios talking to the crowd. I mean, he he's famous for doing stuff like he's insane. He's insane watching him play. You know, he's famous famous for doing stuff like asking members of the crowd which direction he should serve in. You know, like he, he does that all the time, particularly on match points. That's pretty disrespectful to turn around and ask. Him. At one point, he he turned to his own box and yelled at them to stop cheering the same thing. <laughs> he's like, "Will you stop cheering the same thing? It's the same thing over and over again. Just shut up." <laughs> To his own supporters. <laughs> and, you know, it's tough because I think, personally, I'm a fan of him for the most part. I think I think he makes tennis more entertaining. And I think when you have figures like him within a sport, you have to accept that you're going to like maybe 80% of it and there's going to be 20% you don't like, but that you can't pick and choose. That you're just going to have to, you know, like, in order for him to bring that level of entertainment... There's going to be some moments that you wish sort of didn't happen. And I think we saw all of that. He hits incredible shots. I think he's the most talented tennis player in the world. I actually don't think it's close. It's just his hand-eye coordination, the touch and feel he has for a tennis ball. Like, I honestly, th- he if he had the kind of, he's one of those classic players. If he'd had the motivation and dedication of a Roger Federer, I think he would just be winning tournaments pretty much every week. But he doesn't, and that's part of his charm. And it's frustrating, and I do think it it probably leads also. I think he kind of does have a level of disdain for his opponents at times because I think, and he says this openly, he doesn't train or practice. He kind of just turns up for tournaments. And I I think he falls into that category of players where it's like he has so much natural ability that he's almost dismissive of these players. I think he probably looks at someone like Sitsipas and thinks, look how hard you work to not be able to beat me. Like, yeah, like I literally roll out of bed, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's famous at Wimbledon for going to the same pub throughout the tournament, like the night before matches and drinking with people. He, you know, will like play FIFA until three, four in the morning, the night before a big game, he just doesn't care. And I think there's probably part of him that then looks across the net and thinks I'm doing everything possible in a sense to be unprepared for this tennis match. And you're still not beating me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder, too, if some of that is like what you're saying or if some of it is he just mentally can't like I don't know if it's that he doesn't want 
to be like that or if mentally he just can't you know because like it's 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 difficult they get blurred you know he'll put up that persona of like i don't want to be like him i don't want to train hard but it might actually be that you know he mentally can't do it he's just and it's funny too because they were talking about coaches and at one point he was screaming at his box again and i think john macro was like and that's why he doesn't have a coach yeah. because he would quit every week <laughs> yeah. yeah true i and i think you're right i think he probably uses it a little bit like a crutch like it's a great excuse right and and i think we probably everyone can almost relate to that there's been moments in everyone's lives where whether it's at school and kind of like not studying for a test or whatever it is like you've intentionally not prepared properly knowing that then if you fail like that's the excuse, you know, and he's yeah. almost using that within tennis, knowing that he'll be successful enough purely based on, on raw talent, but that it would be more, maybe it'd be a, he doesn't have the ability to just do that grind. And that's obviously still, you know, there's a, the mental sort of fortitude it takes to have the kind of Roger Federer constantly working on your game approach, even after a ton of success, it is a, a gene that not all of us possess, but then there is the other side of it too, which is, if you do do everything you can to put yourself in the best position to win and then you lose, that's a much more crushing defeat. Whereas if you're him and you go, oh, that was a disappointing loss, but I did go out to the pub last night and I did play video games until three in the morning. So like, <laughs> should I be expecting to win? I guess not. Like it's a lot, of, yeah. it's an easier pill to swallow. But yeah, you're right. He has no coach, which was also interesting, you know, for a guy who, does flaunt the rules of tennis obviously tennis the atp tour has decided like in the last few weeks decided to allow the introduction of in-match coaching and nick kyrgios came out he's a big opponent to this even though he's admitted that it goes on constantly (laughs) but he's like he doesn't have a coach he's like this isn't fair yeah his argument was then which i think is a fair one he wasn't necessarily using himself as the example but he was like well think about the lower ranked players players who can't necessarily afford coaches or who certainly can't afford to have coaches be present at all times. It's unfair that a higher, like a a wealthier player gets to benefit from that advantage that just someone else can't simply because they can't afford it. Obviously in his instance, it's not because he can't afford it. It's just because he doesn't want one or couldn't possibly live with one, but I don't think he could hold one long enough. (laughs) And, And yeah, I mean, and yeah, it would be a, I don't even, it might be a dream job as a coach. Like if you're not a very motivated coach, it'd be a great job. Cause you're just like, yeah, he's turned up once in four months. <laughs> like, you know, but then. And then yelled at me for 20 minutes. Yeah. And I, <laughs> he just flies me around the world. I sit there and, and stare at him. <laughs> but yeah. 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 It was, it was an interesting match to watch. It was entertaining to say the least. Um, and then his next match was actually for his, level very calm i mean I, there weren't yeah. many incidences at all and you know he played well he, he was down what two sets right and came back and two sets to one and came back and played really well yeah no he's playing extremely well at the moment it's just that you just can't believe and wimbledon is his favorite tournament grass grass is definitely undoubtedly his best service surface it really suits his game in terms of the strength of uh you know his serve his forehand and he's so good at the net like it's it's the surface he's most suited to, but it's just hard to believe. Like I just if it's him against Djokovic in a final, I just can't believe that Djokovic would lose. Even though I do think Kyrgios is a more talented player and on the right day could blow him off the court if everything was clicking. I just think 
you're not going to see Djokovic get worked up in the same way Tsitsipas did. And I will say, kind of my last point in a sense on his post-match stuff, you know, after his win then in the in the following round, he did come out and say, like, oh, I'm sure I've upset a, peop- a lot of people because, you know, almost everyone wants me to lose. That's straying slightly into the kind of Golden State Warrior territory for me. Of like, yeah. For the most part, you're actually a pretty popular figure within tennis fans. And the last two matches, he's been the favorite from the crowd. Yeah. People love it. 100%. I, th- I think people, even if they go into it not wanting to win, I think they get, they get you know, kind of worked up along with him. Like the, the, f- the enjoyment of just watching him and, and all of that, I think he, he wins people over over the course of a match. So I don't think for one second, he's not Djokovic. Djokovic can, can, is, it knows that most people kind of want him to lose. He is a very unpopular figure. That's not the same for Kyrgios. Yeah, and uh, he's now in his quarterfinals match, uh, which he is favored. And if he were to win that, would likely go on to play Nadal yeah. in the semis. Yeah. And then obviously today, the other quarterfinals were played. Djokovic survived a scare against Yannick Sinner, came from two sets down to win. And then Cameron Norrie kept the British hopes alive by, well, in another five-setter, uh, overcoming David Goffa. So I think if you're Djokovic, Cameron Norrie's been playing really well. But if you're Djokovic, that's kind of a dream semifinal to be playing against a first-time semifinalist who you would think you have every advantage over. And also having played a tough five-setter yourself, he'll be pretty happy to see that his next opponent also had to go through a a grueling five-setter. So, you know, it looks as if we could have a Djokovic-Nadal final, which I think everyone would have hoped for at the start of the tournament. It kind of, you know, they tend to serve up instant classics a lot of the time. But if you end up with Djokovic versus Nadal or Kyrgios, I think what oh, whatever final that gold. is, it will be you know must see TV. Yeah, yeah, and and watching a decent amount of Wimbledon, and watching a decent amount of Americans just falter, made me think that this is a very low point for American tennis. So my question to you, Eddie, who was the last? number one ranked American tennis player and when? Well, you're, you're mean men's, right? You're going to fall into that trap? Yes, men's, <laughs> men's. Um, that's a tough... For men's, yes. It's a low point for men's, obviously. I, well, I think it's, women, are, it's, with Serena. it's a low point for women's as well, right? I mean, you have a few... But that's like more recently because, I mean, Serena three years ago was dominating. Yeah, but after, I mean, even when you look back into the Williams dominant period, for the most part, it was sort of... Serena Williams and then a bunch of Europeans tended to be Eastern Europeans. And now you basically just remove Serena from that bracket. And now it's just yeah. a bunch of Eastern Europeans. So, you know, it's not a great, it is a very much a down period for American tennis as a whole. And, but on the men's game in particular, it's been, um, oh, last number one. I would assume Andy Roddick reached number one at some point. I would think. So I'll say Andy Roddick. Andy Roddick in 2004 was, or 2003 to 2004 for 13 weeks. Yeah. How about when was the last Australian? Well, I'm going to guess it was Leighton Hewitt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just before him, really. 
Yeah, 2001 to 2003. Yeah. No, it's not. Uh, no, I, and I think it's, of, it's, it's a cause for legitimate concern within American tennis, the complete lack of, of men's tennis players really coming through. I mean, they're doing an okay job of developing sort of top 50 players in the world, but just no one is really establishing themselves as a, you know, a top 10, a consistent top 10 player. And for the most part, they are almost like carbon copies of these. There, there's, there's some exceptions, but just big serving, unreliable ground strokes, kind of can be difficult to play on the day, and and pretty good on hard court, pretty good on grass court, but just consistently over the course of the year cannot get result results. But yeah, I don't know when the next U.S. number one would be. It would be an interesting bet to have. Like, do I think there will be a U.S. number one? on the men's side of the game in the next, like if I set the over under at nine and a half years, I'd probably take the over. (laughs) Yeah. We'd have to do a deep dive into the like 12 to 16 year old division. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is also tough, right? And, and it's so hard to overanalyze the men's game because it's been, you've had these incredibly long careers of very dominant players. So there's, there's plenty of players who have emerged over the last 15, 20 years who in other eras would have probably reached world number one at some point. But because you've just had Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer hanging around and being really consistent and then throw in you know, Murray and Vavrinka kind of picking up the scraps at different moments in time, it's been very hard to crack the top five or to even consistently be in the top 10. Well, technically right now you have... You have- a non big three for now. Yeah. For now. Yeah. And that could, could last a while because obviously you're not getting any ranking points out of Wimbledon. So it's uh could be a while until one of them gets back to the top. So I'll just give one more trivia for you and maybe for anyone listening that they can kind of put this in their pocket and bring up while they're watching the final. So kind of going off what you said since from 2004 until 2022, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer have been number one, except for how many other players? I'll say three other players. Incorrect. Higher or lower? Lower. Two. Incorrect. Just one? Yep. Oh, wow. Just Andy Murray for 41 weeks. Huh has been a number one since Federer started number one, February 2nd, 2004. Wow. And Djokovic ended it June 12th, 2022. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible run. That's insane. (laughs) To think three players dominating the sport for 18 years. Yeah. And and throw in a little Andy Murray. And not three consecutive (laughs) players. You know, it's not one of those things of like... No, back and forth. It's not, oh, okay, one player came around, then the next one came around, then the next one came around. It's literally simultaneously they have... Okay, Federer was, was slightly before, but fundamentally they have sort of peaked at similar time periods. Yeah. So Federer has been number one six different times. Nadal has been number one eight different times. And Djokovic has been number one six different times. That's how much they've transferred back and forth. That's insane. <laughs> now, do you think golf would have been better in the Tiger Woods era if that had also been the case, or do you think Tiger Woods being the number one and only dominant was better for golf? 
no, I think any sport benefits from like simultaneous uh, dominant players. I think in, you know, in any era when it, it creates better rivalries. So if you have a sense, you know, like the Peyton Manning, Tom Brady discussion made both of their careers more interesting than if it had just been, well, Peyton Manning's definitely the best quarterback right now, right? You know, like it doesn't, it's not as nearly, I think it drives yeah. the people involved, but it also from a, from a spectator or neutral standpoint and from a media perspective makes it way more interesting. And I think as great as Tiger Woods was for the game of golf, if you'd been able to put, you know, I don't know, sort of Jack Nicholas at the same time as Tiger Woods, because Jack Nicholas in a way benefited from that, right? Over the course of his period of activity, he was up against, I think, far more golfers who would go down as, you know, all-time greats than what in the end Tiger Woods has ended up facing uh, in his sort of prime period. So, yeah, I think it. I, I think the easiest sport to see that in is something like boxing, where you need like you need two great fighters at the same time in order for it to be interesting. It's not interesting to just watch one guy, you know, like dismantle opponents. And, and it also makes it hard to judge just how good was he because you, you know, or, or she, because you're not getting really tested. But yeah, I think every sport, rivalries drive everything. And I think when I think back on, you know, like right now in football, it's, you know, City Liverpool makes the game more interesting to have them going toe to toe or earlier on when it was Chelsea United or Arsenal United before that. I think that's better. And yeah, the same in, you know, every sport. You could almost argue that the Bulls kind of suffered from that. Like the fact that in the, you know, the 90s Bulls, they, they kind of came about at the end of a few t- period teams, dominant period, and then maybe before the Lakers then were able to establish themselves as a really good team and beating the likes of the Jazz and the Phoenix Suns and wasn't maybe quite the achievement that they would have had in different different eras. So kind of just quickly piggybacking off of that, we did a lot of the live golf tour talk and the first American or tournament in America of the live golf tour took place in Portland. Uh, and it was won by Brandon Grace, yeah. the South African. So South Africans winning every week so far. Oh, and he was actually third in the first one in London. So the only thing I think worth mentioning here, because the Live Golf Tour is notorious for the crazy money, is in winning, Grace claimed the $4 million individual prize, as well as a quarter share of the 1.5 second place prize won by his team, because it's also like a team tournament, making his total $4.375 million for winning that three-day tournament. When you combine that with his third place in the first one, in two tournaments, he's now won $6.4 million. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then you factor in whatever signing on, you know, signing bonus he got. Yeah, I mean, it must be, even though I'm sure he was making a good living, you know, he's a fairly well-established professional golfer but i'm i would imagine the last couple of months surpass what he's made in the rest of his career so i i mean no one's disputing that the money must be incredible i don't know if you saw sergio garcia and his rant supposedly in the uh when it came to the live golf tour but uh in may while he was playing on the pga tour he supposedly got angry in the locker room 
and then shouted, this tour is shit. You're all fucked. You should have taken the Saudi money. And uh, it's led to a number of players basically saying they've lost all respect for Sergio Garcia. And that someone they held in such high esteem, they now have next to no respect for. That's awesome. So yeah, just to uh, go off of Brandon Grace, uh, this year on the PGA Tour, he hasn't won anything. Uh, but in 2020, so the last year, 2020, 2021, he won $2.2 million. The year before was 350000 year before that was 1.3 and the year before that 1.5. Yeah, so he's made more in these two weeks than he has in the last five years on the PGA tour. Yeah. Pretty nice. And, and, <laughs> and look, I, I've watched each, both, so both tournaments. I've, I've watched a little bit of the play on YouTube this time around. I was struck by how small the crowds were in attendance. Like it was remarkable. It kind of looked like you were watching just like the annual tournament at a golf club. And, you know, like the, mem- yeah. the members were just coming out to watch their friends play a few holes. I mean, it was, it's really, it was really striking how few people were in attendance. But, I mean, it's worth noting. Uh, the golf just isn't that interesting. And the fact that it's not being won by the big names is not helping. And once the interest in how much money they're winning subsides, I think the, the it's probably in real trouble. Because it's only so long that we can be fascinated by, oh, my God, look at how much this person won this week. Like that will just become like, that's a non-story three months from now, but it's, it's worth also noting, you know, the PGA and the DP world tour, the kind of formerly European tour in response, the PGA has increased its stake in the DP world tour from 15% to 40%. And they've basically formalized this agreement uh, where it establishes the DP world tour almost as a sort of, I'm not going to say a feeder league but very much the sort of second division and that you're then getting promoted onto the PGA tour. It's a kind of a much more formalized relationship between the two, which some see as a positive, some see as a negative, but, uh, but no, it's, it's just interesting. And, and, and there's obviously this war that's now going on between the DP, the European tour, the DP world tour and, it's the players, they blocked them from being able to play in the Scottish Open this weekend. They've now, uh, Ian Poulter and I think a couple, two other players received, there's kind of a legal uh, hearing that gave them permission to play in the tournament this weekend. But I did see it interesting to see, the, I don't know if you saw, they released a, a letter basically threatening the DP World Tour, asking them to remove their uh, suspensions and also not fine them. And the head of the DP World Tour came out in with a pretty firm response saying, fuck you. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, if he could have added this to his statement, I think. So his name is, uh, he, he said, um, many of the, uh, basically arguing that they, they knew that these um, suspensions and, and repercussions were a possibility. He said many of them at the time understood and accepted that. Indeed, as one player named in the letter said in a media interview earlier this year, if they ban me, they ban me. It is not credible that some are now surprised with the actions we have taken. The letter claims that these players care deeply for the DP World Tour. An analysis of past participation statistics on our tour in recent years of several of the leading player names named suggests otherwise. 
one player in particular named in the note has only played six Rolex series events in the past five years. Another one, only four. I wish many of them had been as keen to play on our tour then as they seem to be now, based on the fact that they have either resigned their membership of the PGA Tour or, if they are still in membership, have been suspended indefinitely. So Nice. It's, no one's backing down, which... No. And I guess changing gears slightly, it's an off-season in most other sports, but it's been, been some pretty major transfer news in the world of, of European football or soccer, depending on where you're based over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I guess the, the most notable being Sadio Mane leaving Liverpool to join Bayern Munich in a move that I think surprised many. Just, I mean, it was clear, it was obvious it was going to happen in the in the days leading up to it, but I think most would have thought he was pretty happy at Liverpool for the most part, and that he was the type of player who might sort of finish his career there. But in the end, he's chosen to go to Bayern Munich, which I think is a surprising move. Uh, and then, you know, you've had, uh, you know, a few Gabriel Jesus leaving, unsurprisingly, City now surplus to requirements at City after Erling Haaland signed and moving to Arsenal and uh, Calvin Phillips becoming City's other signing, yeah. well, I, the third signing of the summer, I think. So, I mean, really... I, I As a City fan and supporter and, like, for the organization, it's obviously a great move to just have Calvin Phillips in your back pocket you know, whatever, you don't want to play Holland. But as if I were Calvin Phillips, I don't know how I feel about it. And I we've discussed this a little bit previously. On one hand, you're getting to train in probably the best environment that you could in the world. But on the other hand, you're not able to get that on-field experience day in and day out like you would at almost any other club. Well, so I think it's interesting because obviously he will be, you know, he's kind of in the mold of the defensive midfielder who'd be kind of replacing Fabinho. So then it depends on the formation that they use, you know, but you had Rodri who was doing so well in the back end of last season. Uh, They do, I mean, they just have, yeah, they have two or three options in every position. So I think, you know, when you sign for City that you're going to play, even if you're one of their very best players. You're going to play 60%, 70% of their matches. You might play 100% of their big matches, but you are going to miss out on a considerable number of games just because they need to rotate their squad slightly, and that's part of their strength and depth, right? But I do agree with you. I'd be torn whether or not I'd want to play week in, week out. But then you hear players... It was interesting. I heard Rob Green in an interview. So he was you know, a goalkeeper who played you know, for a number of years for different Premier League clubs. He, he had a, f- a few England caps. I mean, he's famous for making a huge mistake in the 2010 World Cup when England played the USA. He, he kind of let that fairly weak shot uh, squeak, kind of squeak by him in that one all draw in the group stages. He spoke about playing. So he then signed for Chelsea at the back end of his career. And I think he only played 15 minutes during his two seasons, I think he was there. And that was in, I think he said, I think it's a preseason friendly. And that's the only time he got onto the pitch as a goalkeeper. Because, I mean, especially as a goalkeeper, you know, you know that there's, they're never going to, don't really need to rotate. And they definitely, know, there's not going to be many tactical substitutions to bring you on. He said that he almost learned more in those 15 minutes 
playing for Chelsea than he'd learned in the rest of his career because he just saw how world-class players play and that he'd spent the rest of his career kind of trying to stop them from doing things. But he understood all of a sudden, like in those 15 minutes, he saw how players moved for the ball and him as a goalkeeper, like the idea of playing it out from the back that, you know, top teams really, I mean, almost every team tries to do now. He saw how they would move for the ball and create space and come to the ball and all of that. And in 15 minutes, he just realized, wow, this is a level of football I have never taken part in. And I thought that, you know, maybe if you hear something like that and you're Calvin Phillips and in particular, right, he's trying to secure his place in the England team ahead of a world cup and, and try and establish himself as a as a consistent player for England. Maybe you see something like that and think, okay, I'm going to miss out on, like, I mean, the player to ask is Jack Grealish. He's the perfect example. Yeah. Like, if you're Jack Grealish, does any part of him think, I wish I'd stayed at Villa and played every single week? Or did I learn, am I a better player as a result of, like, what I've gone and done at City? I see. You know, and I think it might be two different questions because maybe developing yourself and your talent is probably better because the majority of time you're developing is in training. So you're going to be around the best in training. But in terms of getting into the spotlight and getting to be a household name, which eventually could get you a better contract and get you further and further, that might be the part that you're limited at, at a club like that, because I have to imagine Grealish is getting so much better practicing day in and day out with city than he was with Villa. You'd think so. You'd think he's learning from other players, the standard of coaching you would imagine. I mean, not that it would bad. bad. I mean, right now, just looking at his Instagram pictures, he's definitely getting a great training workout with his shirt off in Greece. He's getting by himself yeah, in but Vegas, different story, different day. He's getting a lot of backlash <laughs> for his summer choices. <laughs> so he, I think there's a little bit of pressure on Jack Grealish to deliver next season. Uh, as much as he handled the back end of last season in terms of, you know, admitting that it maybe hadn't been everything he had hoped, but that he was still delighted to have won the league and played his part in it. I think if Jack Grealish doesn't follow that up with um, a better season next year, there'll be, particularly if he has a disappointing World Cup and a disappointing season for City. I think there'll be a lot of people questioning the price tag and also the reputation. And I guess another one in a similar boat is Richarlison, right? Who's signed with Spurs and is going to kind of sit behind Harry Kane, no? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and look, I think for him, it's a no-brainer going from an Everton team that was struggling to Spurs. I think the question from Spurs' perspective is, is that really where they needed to strengthen um, you know, you have, they have so many attacking options already, really. What they need is probably someone who can come in and, and, and I mean, maybe if they change the way they play slightly, Richarlison can give help give Harry Kane a little bit of a break sometimes. But, I mean, it creates a frightening front three for them if they're able to get it to work with Richarlison, Son, and Kane. You know, that's a really dangerous attacking front three, but you still question defensively and in midfield. Yeah. But I feel like as a forward, you just want to score. <laughs> and if you're not getting in the match, you can't, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would expect Richarlison will play pretty consistently because I think they'll try and find a way to have all three of them on the pitch. Maybe not in quite the, cent- you know, the kind of role he might have 
had in, yeah. at Everton. Or I mean, wore one injury right for from either of them, yeah. and it's a whole different game. And it's a World Cup season, so all these teams will have to be factoring in. You know, they'll need to rotate their squad even more because they're going to have to throw in a major tournament in the middle of the season. So, you know, I think everyone would have to keep that in mind that it's probably worth having a a bigger squad this year than any other year. But I mean, there's, there's some interesting moves. I, it just seems to me like I'd be, my mind would be blown if City don't win the league. Like Liverpool seem to have got weaker and City seem to have definitely got stronger. So I'd be stunned. I'd be absolutely stunned. Well, Liverpool had a uh, pretty decent signing, right? Yeah, yeah. They splashed the cash on, you know, the next big thing for Portugal. Uh, but, you know, and they've done pretty well. You know, the, their transfer record over the past few years in terms of identifying talent has been pretty good. But replacing Sadio Mane, he didn't have a great season last season. He had a good first half of the season, not a great second half of the season. Replacing him... On last season's form, not that tough, but replacing him in terms of the impact that he's had at Liverpool over the last, you know, three or four seasons, that's a those are huge shoes to fill, and you know, I don't know, it it, it just seems like City. I feel like City have got considerably stronger, and at best, you maybe say like if their signings turn out to be really very good, at best Liverpool have stayed the same, and so, you know. And if, assuming Holland stays injury-free or at least reasonably injury-free and finds his feet in the Premier League, it feels like City addressed the big area of weakness. So, I don't know. I'd be I'd be really, really surprised if they don't win the league. And if only Sam were here, we could talk about Arsenal <laughs> signing an, uh, an American keeper. Yeah, <laughs> who then made headlines for refusing to sign a Spurs shirt. I don't know if you saw that, but he was at like... <laughs> A U- no. a U.S. I don't know. It was after a practice. Or oh, something. I did. I did see that. Yeah, yeah. Which is the thing you're supposed to do. But as a new signing, I think he saw. I think as he walked away, he said something like, "That's disgusting" or something. I, I don't know. It seemed a little <laughs> bit performative to me. But you know, it is what it is. And I guess sticking with America, the LAFC got a, a big signing. Yeah, Gareth Bale joined free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Gareth Bale signing. Obviously, everyone has made fun of the fact that, you know, L.A. has so many golf courses that clearly that's what's influenced this decision that he, and then, you know, I've seen on social media a number of people just sort of post maps of L.A. with, you know, golf courses pinpointed to show how many, you know, how many golf options you'll have (laughs) within close proximity. For the MLS, I'm not going to say it's a big signing because there's been, there have been much bigger signings for the MLS. And I mean, Gareth Bale basically hasn't played football in two seasons, three seasons almost, but you know, he's still not far off his prime. He might be the best player to be going to the MLS in, you know, in this, I won't say ever because you had the kind of George best Pele, not in the MLS itself, but in the predecessor, but in terms of the modern era of the MLS, Gareth Bale might be the best player kind of in close to his best years that has ever gone to play in the U S well, I was going to say, when I say Gareth Bale is 32 years old, do you still think only 32 or do you think, wow, he's 32? I think, wow, he's 32. And, and not, it's not a positive 
Like I, yeah, that's what. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, I think wow, he's thirty two, and think, I mean, look, he's. It says a lot about his mindset that he's chosen to go to the MLS because there are a lot of rumors that he could have done stuff like gone to play for Cardiff, which would have been an interesting move, would have required a huge pay cut on his, you know, on his end, but it would have been, you would have at least thought what a nice story, this kind of player from Wales going to go and play back home and try and help Cardiff get promotion. And in a season where he's, you know, he'll be going to represent Wales in the world cup. It would have been a pretty nice storyline. I mean, there were also rumors that was not to be believed that he was going to go and play for Wrexham, but you know, I, it says a lot about him that he's opted to go to the MLS in particularly, particularly in a world cup season. I would have expected him to try and get a one year deal in a league where he really felt like he could have put himself in the absolute best position to go to a world cup. But it says a lot. It's kind of the Nick Kyrgios mindset almost like I don't need, (laughs) you know, we've just spoken about players, right. Kind of going to clubs where it can help them to improve or help them into be in the best form possible. And he is actively choosing to go to a place where there's no way he'll be tested as much as he will then be tested at that world cup. So it does say a lot about kind of what he thinks of himself and what he thinks he needs in order to be able to go out and perform at the highest level. Yeah. And then similar to him, you had Lorenzo Insigne, who also went to Toronto FC. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, same, about the same age too. I think like 30, 31. Yeah. Uh, That makes more sense. You know, I think he would have had fewer options available to him, uh, but you know, I, it's different. It depends on who you are. You know, you had uh, Cialini also signed for LAFC. Um, but that makes way more sense. He's at the very end of his career. And yeah. he's not going to a World Cup this winter. And he just won the Euros. No. And won everything he could have ever won over his club career actually playing consistently. So he has nothing left to prove. So you can understand for him thinking... I can understand the players going to the MLS and be like, I want to delay retirement slightly and keep playing because I think if I were a professional athlete, I want to hold on to it for as long as possible. Even if it meant dropping down the levels, like if I were playing in the premier league and I thought I couldn't play in the premier league, if that, if that meant I had to go and play in like league two to keep going for a while, I think I'd probably do it. I mean, that's obviously the mindset of someone who's never played a sport professionally. So you're, it might, you may just get too tired and can't be bothered, but I can understand anyone doing that. I would never judge them. But when you're Gareth Bale and you know you could be continuing to test yourself at a higher level, it seems just a little bit of a shame after you basically sat out for two years. But speaking of inter- of disappointments, and maybe as our last topic, on previous episodes, I have mentioned Obi-Wan, the TV show. I can't remember which Obi-Wan discussions at this point have or took place in episodes that never never aired i don't think we've ever actually aired any okay Obi-Wan. unless it was last episode no it was it was i i went on my rant about princess leia's running style and i don't know i think that episode did not make the light of day but you at that point had not seen any of the episodes and now you have fully caught up on the obi-wan experience i have so i will relaunch my princess leia running rant go ahead going. i'll give you i'll give you the floor i'll iso you out <laughs> <laughs> you know the early episodes of obi-wan i didn't actually hate like 
they were what they were. I'm probably out Star Wars. Like I'm not a huge Star Wars fanboy of, you know, like I liked it as a child and there's, it's kind of nice to dip back into the nostalgia. And, uh, but you know, the first couple of episodes were okay. I actually think, and I said this, the, the girl playing Princess Leia, I actually thought she was a decent actress from the standpoint of like a child actor. I don't think she was bad when she needed to des- deliver lines or express emotion. She was okay. It wasn't like it was completely ruining every scene. However, her running, which was a major plot point at different moments in different episodes, several episodes was several episodes was awful. I mean, she, her, and I cannot believe I said this in my previous rant. So if this has been previously aired, I apologize, but I can, it definitely has it. I cannot believe that they wouldn't just get her some kind of coach to just be like, look, it will take a little bit of work, but all we need to do is just work on your form slightly so it might look like you're kind of fast. Because when it reached the absolute worst moment was when she is initially, I guess we'll say spoilers alert, spoiler alert for anyone not who has not already seen Obi-Wan and who intends on watching it, although at this point you are way behind. Yeah. When she is initially captured, that is like that was like something out of a slapstick comedy. Like the these guys like <laughs> running into branches and slipping as they're chasing her through a forest while she's running at probably, I don't know, two point five miles an hour. They they gave her one reasonably athletic thing that when she slid, that was the one moment where she kind of like looked, under the tree log. Yeah, looked okay. That was the one moment where you're like, okay, her size is an advantage in this. But these idiots just focused, so fixated on following this little girl that they were just running into things as they were chasing her. It was laughable. Like if it, if that had been in a like a spoof, if that had been in Spaceballs, I would have believed it. So for it to actually be in Star Wars in whatever serious form you want to classify Star Wars as, it blew my mind and completely ruined the experience. Yeah. So I've got a few takes on Obi-Wan. I will say I did for the most part, not enjoy it. The only thing I actually really enjoy, so all right, well, definitely spoiler alerts because we're going to get through like all the major plot points. That running was terrible. There's even a point in the second episode when Obi-Wan is chasing her through like the market and she somehow eludes him when he's half a step from her and she outpaces him. I mean, that's it was... That was annoying. No, it makes no sense. Also, it's not as if Princess Leia as an adult was famed for her athleticism. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not as if they're playing on, oh, yeah, remember in the original three Star Wars movies where she was this kind of physical phenomenon? Yeah. (laughs) Like, she was just a, a normal person. And then all of a sudden now she's this child who no one can catch. Yeah. So, Okay. A few things that angered me about it. One, Star Wars is notorious for having the like stormtroopers that can't hit a shot to save their lives. And I'm I don't enjoy it because it's so unrealistic, but I'm on board for like, oh my God, they're so bad. There's 70 of them shooting at two people and they can't hit these two people. I don't know how, even if you're just shooting blanks anywhere. You're not hitting them, but they counter that with the first scene of the show where the stormtroopers come in 
with Anakin and just wipe out Jedis, the most talented fighters in the galaxy. In that first scene, the stormtroopers are just wiping them out. Well, as a whole, with this whole idea of Jedis being persecuted and hunted, Jedis are unkillable until the plot requires they get killed. And And then they're like, they just fall like flies. shooting ducks in a barrel. That's not even shooting fish in a barrel. But I guess they were shooting ducks in a barrel. You can shoot ducks in a barrel. Shooting ducks with their wings clipped in a barrel. And and their feet have been cut off just to make it even easier. They can't even paddle around. Like, no, I mean, yeah, they are. Like, because that was episode one. And then you fast forward to episode, I don't know what it was, four or five or six, where the stormtroopers like corner the, the, the rebels or whatever they're called at this point. And they can't hit Obi Wan and the and the woman who's not even a Jedi. They can't hit her to save to save their lives. There's like forty of them in a tunnel, that's six feet long, six feet wide, and they can't hit her so, until like eventually they do. Uh, like twenty minutes later, was, that that part was annoying. The part that really, really, really gets me about Star Wars is the intermittent use of the Force. I cannot stand it. So I'll give you the number one example that drove me insane. The first encounter with Darth Vader and Obi-Wan, they roll up into like this junkyard and Darth Vader like lights a fire and then uses the force to basically pull Obi-Wan into the fire and is just embarrassing Obi-Wan, just, just demoralizing him and giving him first degree burns in the process. Fast forward five minutes later, there's then another explosion and this almost a similar fire that's separating Darth Vader and Obi-Wan and Darth Vader stares at Obi-Wan and the robot that's collecting him. And all of a sudden can't use the force to at the very least hold him there. He can use the force to drag him through a fire to his own death, but he can't have he can't use the force to hold the robot from carrying him away is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Because then two episodes later, he pulls a, a fucking ship back. <laughs> he pulls a spaceship back. And here's the thing. But he can't hold a robot? Here's the thing is, I'm sure there's probably some fanboys out there who, who can explain this. You know what I mean? Like there's probably. No, there is no, expo- no, there's there's no explanation. Probably, they probably in the canon of Star Wars have probably written some explanation that gives them a pass on this. But fundamentally, the only thing, Obi-Wan made it clear to me. The only reason the Star Wars drama kind of continues is everyone involved kind of in it for the love of the game. Like they're not willing to finish this thing off because you're right. Darth Vader had ample opportunity to kill Obi-Wan and just like, he's just toying with him. You know, it's just, yeah, he's just in it for the chase. And then similarly flash forward to kind of the end of the, towards the end of the series, the climax, Obi-Wan has, could just kill Darth Vader. Like this could have been the end. The whole well, and vice versa. No, no. Darth Vader had Obi Wan trapped in the him, rocks trapped in the and rocks. didn't finish him off. I guess he assumed he was dead. I don't know why wouldn't you check? But then you know he just wanders off. He's like, oh, that's done. Yeah. And also, again, these guys are supposed to be able to sense each other with the Force, right? Sense it. Yeah. How do you not sense that he's still alive yeah. or sense he's dead? Yes. And but then okay, he has Darth Vader just there, just to be finished off. And then just gets emotionally overwhelmed by the fact that his friend, Anakin Skywalker, no longer exists. So he cries and wanders off. 
And then in the pro- as a result of this, planets get destroyed. You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> thousands, if well, not millions of people lose their lives just because Obi-Wan was a little bit too torn up over the fact that his friend did a, has fully evolved into a monster. See, see, now this is where you can fully roast that part too. Because before that scene, Obi-Wan is quoted as saying, it ends here, one of us is going to die. So he's going into it saying that either he's going to kill him or he's going to get killed. Then he has the opportunity. And see, this is where I think it's even worse is because I think the reason he's holding back is because he sees, he still thinks it's Anakin and it's still his friend. But Darth Vader clearly says to him, Anakin's dead. It wasn't even your fault. I took him over. There's no more Anakin. It's just me, this terrible, terrible person who's going to kill millions of people. At that point, you say, you know what? You're right. Anakin's gone. You're dead. But I think you actually touch on a good point there, which is if they drilled home that element more, that he still thinks there is some element of humanity within Darth Vader, which if you think about it would be justified as the as it plays out because towards the end of, you know, when he admits that he's Luke, I'm your father and has all that yeah. bit. He, ha- he there sh- is something he left. shows that there is bit, there is some of him left. But you're right. It's Obi-Wan being like, one of us dies now. If if it were the reverse, if throughout the whole thing, Obi-Wan was arguing with people, no, we can still save Anakin Skywalker. Like we can still yeah. do this. But the fact that he seems hell-bent on killing him until he has the opportunity to do so, and then doesn't even say, like doesn't, they should, they, they should make it too obvious that he says like, no, I can't do this to you because I think, you can still be saved. If he'd done that and wandered yeah. off and been like, okay. Because they, they actually played it the opposite. Yeah. They make you seem as if he realizes there There's is nothing. no Anakin left. Exactly. So why not kill him? Why not kill him when yeah, half of exactly. his mask has been destroyed and he literally can yep. barely breathe and he's just there to be killed. And then, and then that to me brings the other point of what I didn't like about the show is that you know, one, Darth Vader's not dying and neither is Obi-Wan. And two, Luke Skywalker isn't dying either. Yeah. And that's okay. That's I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is the bullshit reason they give us that Obi-Wan doesn't kill Darth Vader. Like that scene isn't logical. If something had happened and like he's he like goes to kill him, but then something crazy, like the the I don't know, the planet splits and he floats away and he can't get to him. I'm okay with that. Okay. You could see the intent, blah, blah, blah. But to the way they ended it, why he didn't kill him, makes no sense. Yeah. And also, they tried to have all of these, you know, moments of, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? Not really cliffhangers because they weren't always at the end of episodes or anything, but you just moments within an episode where it'd be like, bum, 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 here comes the big decisive moment. Who will die? Obi-Wan or Darth Vader? Will Princess Leia survive? Will, uh, will Luke Skywalker survive? It's yeah. like, Unless you've <laughs> never seen Star Wars? You know they all do, you know. I mean, yep. like, there's no drama here. Like, unless yeah. something mind blowing is going to happen, it's like, well, we killed Obi Wan, but he came back to life. Like, you know, like it's something crazy. But like, they needed to, as much as the show is centered around Obi Wan, it's where, in a sense, like, the Mandalorian really benefited because, as much as it, and again, I know there's a ton of Star Wars canon that kind of goes behind it, but unless you are a huge Star Wars fan, they're able to. Every character 
was up for grabs. Like they could do anything yeah. to anyone in that TV series. And unless you were really, really into that universe, you were not going to really be able to appreciate what that might mean. Whereas all of the other ones, the kind of Boba Fett or, you know, all of these, the Obi-Wan or whatever it is that's going to come next, you, you kind of know where they need to take you. And I think that's the thing. It's like, you can't possibly build real drama unless you are a, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old who this is your introduction to Star Wars. Like, great. If, if, if you are getting to experience the Star Wars universe as it exists right now in chronological order, maybe your feelings for <laughs> Obi-Wan is different. Like if your parents are sitting you down and being like, we're going to watch the Obi-Wan TV show first. Well, episode one, two, three, well, episode- then the Obi-Wan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Episode one, two, three, then Obi-Wan, then episode four, five, six. Then we're going to watch, I guess, Boba Fett. Or maybe the Mandalorian first, then Boba Fett, you know, like, and then whatever, wherever the other episodes fit in at different moments in time. Well, Mando fits in somewhere in between. uh, It's before three. Yeah. And then you have the weird other things like the Han Solo movie, right? So that has to fit in somewhere. Like, if you're getting to go through all of these things, otherwise, all of these prequels, you're just like, well, I, I know this person doesn't die. And then they don't do a good yeah. enough job of building any kind of real emotional attachment to any of the newer characters. So when they kill them off, you're like, I don't really care. You know, like the, yeah. the, 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 wait, speaking of characters, I know I don't want to like dwell on this show too much. Cause I'm sure everyone listening, most people haven't seen it, but the, one of the guys that's leading the rebellion when Obi-Wan first comes in and he's like, there is no way in hell I'm helping you. And then Obi speaks for 30 seconds. He's like, anything you need, I got yeah. you, man. What do we got to do? <laughs> Where was that 180? No, that 180. It's even worse than he said. He goes, there's no way in hell we're helping you. We got to save all of these people's lives. That has to be the focus. And then he says, Obi-Wan goes, that little girl, though, I like you don't know what the Empire can do. And he says, I don't know what the empire can do. And then he obviously implies that his wife was some kind of Jedi. He's like, we, yeah. we tried to live a normal life. Then they came and killed her. I know exactly what the empire can do. I'll do whatever you need. <laughs> <laughs> did, did he forget that his wife had died? And he's like, oh, shit, <laughs> I should probably help. <laughs> like, Got me. He doesn't explain. If he had at least, if it had been his daughter or something, you could have been maybe playing on the like, we got to help this little girl. Fine. This reminds me of my daughter. Do you know what? I would want her to yeah. say too. It's like, my wife. Okay, what about all these other people? You're like, oh, fuck all these other people. They're not princesses. Better save her. Yeah, it was really good. That cracked me up. Oh, man. Yeah, and overall, not, not very good. No. We need a Star Wars break. Yeah. I, the, I, the only good scene, even though the logistics of it were shitty, was the fight with Darth Vader and yeah. Obi-Wan. Really cool. Like, from a, a CGI visual effects, awesome. But there is no way in hell, if you had told me you get a cool 10-minute scene, but you got to watch five hours of random crap to get to it, I would never do that again. But, you know, even that scene kind of gets ruined for me because I start to see it. And then I just, all I imagined as that scene started was being in like a movie theater and just a bunch of like Star Wars fanboy dorks getting like lightsaber boners and just screaming and cheering as the fight broke out. 
You know what I mean? Like I, I could. Can I ask you something? What's the difference between a normal boner and a lightsaber boner? If you're a fanboy, <laughs> it's it's just extra in enlarged, engorged. Is it shining? He can, yeah, you can pick your color. <laughs> but like, I that's all I could imagine. I was like, oh, I bet you there are people. I bet I I could have I could literally I bet you there are a number. I would. Not if this is not a handful of people who are probably in their living rooms watching that and that fight scene started. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally. And and that made me hate it. Oh, I mean, the number of people that I have seen who are big Star Wars fans who loved the show. Insane. I don't understand how how you can watch that regardless of how much you enjoy star wars and say wow that was extremely well done but i mean that's the thing to me i i could have there was a moment in time right where we were kind of starved of star wars content like where it's like will we ever get another star wars movie or another star wars tv show and i can understand at that point if you're a huge star wars fan that anything you were given you should like you were going to love but at this point we're overwhelmed by star wars content so if I were a huge Star Wars fan, that would actually make my standards even higher. Be like, no, this is really disappointing. I love this, and you're ruining it. Instead of, I love this, I must love everything you do. That bit I never get. Yeah. No. I don't either. Hey, there's some Star Wars rants. Probably won't have any have any in any time in the future. It's It's so disappointing that we don't our Ozark rant never got yeah. published. Maybe I can really that was a, that was a much better rant. Do you know what I can probably put our Ozark rant? If you really want to hear our thoughts on Ozark, I think I can publish our Ozark rant as a YouTube video. So okay. if people want, search for the Big Chill Podcast on YouTube. And if you disagree a, with a our, three month old well, rant, if you disagree with our thoughts on Star Wars, follow search for the Big Chill Podcast on Instagram or Twitter, and you can tell us that, you're, that we're wrong there. See, now there's another example of a show that told you about an ending, so you knew none of the characters were going to die. But what I like about this, what's better about this one, is that scene ended up not mattering fuck all for the entire show, because they just got out of a massive car crash completely unscathed. It would be like if they call this one Obi-Wan, and he had just appeared in the opening scene and then disappeared. (laughs) And do you know what? People also raised a good point. Through all this massive struggle, what's Yoda doing? Yoda's just this super powerful Jedi who just living off on his... He's in hiding. Just on his swamp island doing nothing. Like he knows... He knows like... He's got a swamp ass. But he knows like... (laughs) Sitting around. But you know, he must know the importance of everything that's going on, right? Like he must be able to feel it in the force. Like how close the world is to utter destruction. And he's just there, you know, killing bugs in his swamp. When he, I mean, holding out. I know there's big arguments. People love it, right? There's that like Reddit movement to argue that the Reddit that the Empire was actually that they were the good guys. That there's there's big arguments for this. It's like a popular internet movement. In a way, when you see a when you kind of see how people behave in Obi Wan, maybe they're not wrong. Like, <laughs> maybe the Jedi's are just selfish assholes and the world would have been better off without them. Yeah. Maybe. So I guess that about wraps it up. The only other thing I had was we mentioned uh last podcast about the 
Colorado Avalanche winning the cup and the celebrations. Uh, they had already dented it uh, now multiple times. Uh, but I don't know if you saw what well, we didn't discuss. I don't know if you saw the article where the Stanley Cup had accidentally been delivered to a random family. Oh, yeah. So apparently it was the first day it was supposed to go to the Captain Landisgog's house. And they got the address mixed up by like one number was off. So they rang the doorbell to this house and they opened the door and like they have a video and the wife's like, who is it? And the the husband's like, I don't know, but I think it's the Stanley Cup. (laughs) Just this guy up front holding the Stanley Cup. Uh, And it was like crazy. And they got to take a few pictures with it, uh, which is kind of cool. But it was just completely random. Could you imagine like what would be? the coolest trophy that could be delivered to your house, you think? I mean, I think it's probably the Stanley Cup, but I would just want to drink out of it. Like, that would be my... Do you think Do you think you can negotiate that? No. <laughs> I think they don't let you do that. But I would just say, like, can I just pour one beer into it and drink out of it, please? Yeah. Like, I don't even need... We won't even film it. No. Like, I don't even need photos. Like, I just, yeah. I just want the story that no one will ever believe me. Never happened. I can tell it and people won't believe it because no. there's no pictures or proof. Yeah. But I'll know. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But there's no way they let you do it. <laughs> I don't know. With the way they're, the way the players are treating it right now, maybe it's not the worst thing. I'm, maybe you negotiate. Like, whose house are you going to? Like, can I come with you now? And get a picture? Yeah. Maybe that's the move, and then you hope that that'd be cool. Then you hope that you they go, hey, you can stay. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. tell the funny story, like oh, you guys won't believe it. They delivered it to my house first, and I just asked if like I could maybe come along to get a picture with you. And maybe, just maybe, they say, well, you're here now. You might as well stay yeah. for the day. Because I mean, alternatively, if you were really quick on your feet, the guy who's delivering the Stanley Cup has no fucking idea who these players look like. And you could have just been like, oh, thanks. I knew I was getting it. See you later. And just take it into your house. He stays around, doesn't he? I don't know what the specifics are on that. He just knows where it is. And it's like you can't. I think so. And if you go out with it somewhere, then he has to yeah, go, but, I think. It's yeah. something of that. Long. I, I think there's a pretty good chance they could have taken it at least for an hour before someone realized what happened. Before, like, Landis got called up and been like, weren't you guys supposed to deliver the cup to me, like, four hours ago? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if that happens, if he leaves it. Sold. Black yeah. market. Do you just... I'm gone. You just go, <laughs> we're getting on an airplane. <laughs> it's just people going to the airport. Doesn't that guy have... You just check. Is this hand luggage the Stanley Cup? <laughs> I think what you do is you go on the roster, look to see what player you most look like, quickly try and find a way to get his jersey put that jersey on and then just go to a bar with the cup and have people think you're him and just live like live that fantasy for as long as you could i don't think you'd even have to look like anyone i mean assuming you're a guy under the age of 40 and you just say i'm a hockey player i think i mean unless you were but if you're going to a bar in the town right because it's in denver Okay, if they're in Denver, then yeah, you might need... I still think you'd be surprised by how few people... If you just said... Like, if you just said your your real name, if you were just at the bar and you're like, I'm Frank Duca. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I barely play, but I'm on the team, and this is my day with the Stanley Cup. I think most people would just... Because the Stanley Cup's there. 
Yeah. You'd be a real asshole to be like, I don't believe you. It's like, I have the, I yeah. have the Stanley cup. <laughs> or you just plant that guy in the audience and is like, Hey, that's so-and-so. <laughs> oh. And then boom, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Just get your brother to walk in. Oh my God. Yeah. You're my favorite <laughs> hockey player. Yeah. I, I loved you in college. It's such a shame. You've yet to make it on the ice. <laughs> well, he had to make it on the ice to get on the cup. All right. Well, with that, I guess uh, we'll wrap it up. I'll talk to you later. See you. Cheerio.